0: Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. We gather every Sunday at 930 and 11 o'clock and would love for you to join us. If we can do anything for you at all, please email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Then the Lord spoke to
1: Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the Earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors? when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you can come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? Have you ever journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me, if you know all this, what is the way to the abode of light, and where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for showing us that you're, you're quite scary powerful, yet you're so merciful, and patient, and compassionate. Uh, forgive us for our ignorance and our weakness. Uh, oftentimes we feel like we have everything figured out or that we know better than you, but we are foolish in our thinking and we apologize. Please help us to grow in truth and wisdom as we learn through the examples in the book of Job. Please do a mighty work in us that we may develop humble faith and sincere obedience. Amen. Amen.
0: You can be seated. Scary Powerful. Scary Powerful. It's good. Well, last week we explored part one of the book of Job. Job is 42 chapters long, and it's intense rhetoric. Some of you loved that. Some of you who are philosophy minors or majors loved those conversations. I found myself losing it. Trying to, stay, trying to stay focused. And so as I went through, I labeled every chapter. Like here's a, trying to summarize the arguments or the ideas presented in every chapter. So last week, we looked at the very beginning of the story. We laid the, the foundation for understanding what's going on in the book of Job. And uh, if you weren't here for last week, or if you're, you're going through a really difficult time, or you have a friend who's going through a really difficult time, some kind of suffering or maybe just hellish, I'd encourage you to go back to that conversation or to share that conversation with them because there's some, there were some powerful ideas and truths presented as a result of, of uh, opening up God's Word. At one point or another, we're all going to suffer. It's the nature of our world. And unless Christ comes back, uh, before we die, we're all going to die. We're all going to face the ultimate vulnerability of death. And we're all in our, in our lifetime going to see and experience things that we would identify as injustices. Good people get the short end of the stick. People who we would label as bad people or evil people seem to do well and flourish and never, never have any problems. And last week we began to discuss if you do good and you still suffer, then what's the point of doing good in the first place? Why serve God? There's that, you know, Proverbs, Proverbs 3. What about trust in the Lord with all your heart? Lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Well, what about when it feels like he doesn't make your paths straight and things feel pretty crooked? And if there are people who live and ignore and actively defy God and seem to be doing okay, where's the fairness in that? And if God is good, why do we experience suffering? Why are the desires of our heart always inches out of reach. As we discussed last week, the book of Job is what could be known as a didactic story. Didache in Greek means teaching. This is a story intended to to teach a lesson, to explore an idea. And if you'll you'll allow me, it's more like Aesop's Fables, which is intended to talk about a point than a traditional biography, which is concerned chiefly with, with names and places and historical details of a person. And Job belongs to this genre known as wisdom literature, which is exploring the questions of what constitutes a good or a blessed life. And Job plays this role of kind of a devil's advocate to the book of Proverbs, which on the whole makes the case that a way to a blessed life, the way to a blessed and fruitful and good life, is through wisdom. That if you trust God and choose wisdom, He's going to cause life to work out for you. But if you reject God and ignore wisdom, you are going to reap what you've sown. In Job, as we looked at in the opening chapters last week, the the story makes makes pains to clarify. Job is a guy who has chosen wisdom, and he's choosing uh, the way of God. He wants to be a person who flourishes like we talked about in Psalm 1 in the reading this morning. And yet, though, though Job trusts God and chooses wisdom, he suffers anyway. He loses his servants. He loses his health. He loses his crops. He loses his children. He, he's suffered the ultimate tragedies in life. And the bulk of the book is this conversation between Job and his three friends trying to make sense out of why. And for those of you who have experienced loss and real tragedy, you've done the same thing trying to understand the rhyme or reason behind your loss. Why did this happen to me? And that's the central conversation of the book of Job. And central uh, to to the arguments of Job and his friends is an idea not used in the book, but reflected again and again in the book of retributive justice. This is the idea that ultimately in life, we all get what's coming to us. If you are bad, you'll get bad. If you are good, good things will happen to you. And it's kind of like karma. And Job's friend Eliphaz uh, typifies this perspective of retributive justice. Eliphaz says, consider now who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I've observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. We all ultimately get what's coming to us, says Eliphaz. But the book, as we looked at last week, actually undoes this argument because God declares Job blameless in God's sight. So it undoes the argument. Furthermore, we looked at this interaction between Jesus and a man born blind in John chapter 9. As Jesus went along, He saw a man blind from birth. The disciples asked Him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're asking, in what way was retributive justice at work? And Jesus gives a clear answer. Neither, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so the Job account, where God declares Job blameless and yet he suffers anyway, and this encounter with Je- between Jesus and the man born blind demonstrates. A clear response. And it proves that retributive justice, the idea that we all ultimately get what's coming to us in life, is not the, the primary force at work in our world. It's not that the driving d- dynamic behind our existence. It refutes the idea that a person's particular sin is the cause of their particular suffering. Because you, you know, looked at a woman lustfully, a tree fell on your house. One's particular sin is not necessarily the cause of one's particular suffering. Well, then what accounts for the suffering in our world? We looked at this last week, and we said that our collective sin has invited this chaos into our world. Our universal rebellion has had uh, an enormous effect on our existence, like a million bouncy balls ricocheting off the walls in a racquetball court. The chaos that has entered into the world through our collective sin indiscriminately takes people out left and right. And so people who are good and who are choosing wisdom suffer. They live with the ramifications of a fallen world because of our collective rebellion. This chaos that has been unleashed in the world indiscriminately takes people out left and right. And this chaos shows up in natural evil we have tornadoes, we have stickers, we have tsunamis, we've got ticks, we've got all these uh, things that, that show up in our world that are, are, are irritants or much more like cause loss of life. It's, it's natural evil. But we also have the collective consequences of our sin that show up in, in moral evil. The effects of our sin have a compounding effect. There's chaos that's been introduced into our world. And when it feels like there's no rhyme and reason to it, it's because there isn't it's chaos. And last week we concluded with saying, you know, we don't get to choose what happens to us, but we do get to choose how we respond to it. And so as we considered, uh, those of us who are going through uh, periods of suffering, and as we prepare for the inevitabilities of life when we will ourselves suffer, we looked at these four responses that Scripture invites of us. And I could have done six or seven or ten more, but we looked at four. We prayed, in my suffering... Like the man born blind, may the work of God be displayed in me. In my suffering, may I embrace the lessons of perseverance so that I can be mature and complete, lacking nothing. In my suffering, may I rely on the prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. When we don't know how to pray for ourselves, the Spirit is praying for us. Romans chapter 8. And finally, uh, in my suffering, may I remember that this is not the end, and we looked at Revelation chapter 21. We don't get to choose what happens to us, but we get to choose how we respond to it. And that covers the first half of our conversation on Job. What happens next? Uh, If you did the reading, you kind of had a context for what Corey read for us, but uh, let let me help orient all of us there. For the first 30 or so chapters of this book, we've got this back and forth between Job and his friends, and in Job chapter 31, it's Job's last self-defense speech, and he has this, uh, this mic drop kind of moment in Job uh, 31 at the end of it. And after he's cataloged, I'm innocent in all these different spheres of life, Job says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser, he's linking the Almighty and his accuser, let my accuser put his indictment in writing. He's confident he's done nothing wrong and he's assuming this position of of the upper hand. Surely I would wear my indictment on my shoulder, I'd put it on like a crown, I would give him an account of my every step. If my land itself cries out against me and all its furrows are wet with tears, if I've devoured its yield without payment or broken the spirit of its tenants, let briars come up instead of wheat and stinkweed instead of barley. And then it says the words of Job are ended. (laughs) He drops the mic. Job out. Job at the end assumes this posture of, of, of righteous indignation. He's confident that he's on the right side of things. And we have one more speech from a friend. And then in Job chapter 38, God enters the conversation for the first time. In the first two chapters, we see this divine conversation that Job is not privy to, but now heaven and earth have blended and, and Job, God is addressing Job. And it's interesting, if you'll pay attention, and you should go back and read this if you haven't previously. It's interesting that God does not primarily respond to the content of the speeches go back and read the whole book of job and then read god's statement god does not primarily respond to the content of the speeches instead he's speaking to the posture and the tone of the speakers listen to god's response job 38 and then the lord spoke to job where out of the storm he said who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. That's that scary, powerful thing that Corey was talking about. It's interesting. Before God says a word, uh, there's, there, a point is made. It says that God spoke to Job out of the storm. In and, and thinking about Job out of the, the last two weeks, uh, and also thinking about what's gone on in Tulsa in the last two weeks, this point stood out to me. You know, Game of Thrones ended recently, and millions of people watched Game of Thrones, but not everybody. In February, when we have the Super Bowl, millions and millions of us will gather around TVs, but not nearly everyone in the world. Though I'm not a soccer fan, I'm told that when there's a big, like, European soccer match, millions more than the Super Bowls will watch, but not nearly all of the people in the world. But I will tell you that in Tulsa in the last two weeks, everybody's been paying attention to the weather. Everybody has been cognizant of that rising river and everyone has been listening to the voice of Travis Meyer as if their life depended on it. And there was, you know, it was a week ago at 1245 in the morning last Sunday where Emily woke me up and the tornado sirens are going off and we're debating whether to get the kids in the closet because things are coming our way and and, and the storms were scary. Everybody was paying attention. God spoke to Job out of the storm. As if to say from like the beginning of this conversation, disabuse yourself of the notion that this is a conversation between equals. I'm the one who brings storms. Be quiet and listen. And then God begins to interrogate his interrogator. And he goes through these examples within creation. You can see it if you have your Bible open. He says, you know, where were you when this happened? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the deep? Have you ever given orders to the morning? Do you know the way to the abode of light? Have you ever entered the storehouses of snow? And God goes on and on giving examples of of the stars and their design, of, of lightning, of lions, of goats, and donkeys, and oxen, and the ostrich, and the horse, and the hawk. And he describes the design and the intricacy of his plans. And Job is like, okay, okay. I get the point. I get the point. This is Job's first response, uh, though God is not nearly done. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Do you still want to correct me? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will never speak again. Again. The Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Look, we are not done. You just spent 30 chapters complaining about me. I'm going to get three in. Brace yourself like a man. I'll question you, and you will answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Out of the knowledge of the presence of God, Job is very confident He's quick to defend himself when it's just him and his buddies sitting around a campfire pontificating on things that they can't understand. But in the presence of God who created all things, there's an immediate perspective shift. God says, well, the one who contends with me, argues with me, fights with me, correct me. And Job's response is he recognizes I am not qualified for this conversation. He says, I am unworthy. Unworthy. But God is not nearly done. It will go on for another chapter and a half like this where God gives examples of the, divine, the, the design of all of the animal kingdom and plant life. And then there are these chapters about the behemoth and the great creature of the deep, Leviathan. And finally, after all of it, where God has just pummeled into Job, Job gives his second and his final response. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen, and I'll speak. I'll question you, and you'll answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, and this is Job's conclusion, I despise myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. What happens to Job in that moment? He experienced the, the most severe grief and loss that any of us can imagine. And some of you know acutely the, the categories of pain that Job experienced. But what happens to him in that moment? Why repent and withdraw his complaint or his question? It's like in the presence of God, Job gains perspective that he's small. I'm small, God's big. I lack perspective, God sees everything. Job realizes I'm finite, God is infinite, I know some things, God knows everything. I should shut my mouth. In the first volume to his systematic theology, Tom odin not, my, not related to me, Tom Odin said this, He said, those who are time-bound in every moment of consciousness may tend understandably to think of eternity as infinite duration. He's talking about the idea that God is eternal. Those of us who live in time think about eternity as infinite duration or infinite time, an inexact and confusing idea. Since human reason and experience are so saturated with the assumption of time, we live in a world of time. We know, you know, how long long it takes for the earth to go around the sun, how long for the earth to take to revolve on its axis. Since we live in a world so saturated with the assumption of time, it's difficult for us to fathom this mystery. But it it is as if God were on a mountain watching a river. Picture that. Humans see the flow of this river only from a particular point on the bank, but God, as if from high above, sees the river in its whole extent at every point simultaneously. Job is realizing in this moment that he's having a conversation not between equals. He is small. God is big. He lacks perspective. God sees everything. And after 42 chapters of this book, the author of Job is driving home and demonstrating a central tenet of true wisdom. This comes from Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One to know and experience and encounter the scary, powerful nature of God. That is understanding. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of true wisdom. The thing that can be so confusing and difficult for us to get around our brains about the nature of God is we have these paradoxes that are held in tension. Because as we sang, it is the truth that God is near to the brokenhearted. God is also transcendent above all. Yes, God makes His dwelling among us by the Spirit. He's happy to dwell in the hearts of of children and adults alike, and yet the heavens can't contain this God who created out of nothing. Yes, God deals kindly and mercifully with us. And yet, in this Job encounter, we all have these moments of realization where we see that God could also squash us like a bug. And a haughty spirit, an arrogant spirit before this God is not only foolish, it's dangerous. And to arrogant Westerners like us who have been trained by default to believe that everything is up for debate... The message of Job brings a wound that can give us healing. A revelation of the immensity, the infinity, the limitlessness of God, and by contrast, our smallness, our limited nature, our unimpressiveness before God. As the tornado comes toward us, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, powerful in this life or not, and before God, we all stand unequal to Him. We are small. And to internalize this message, and this is not by any means in contrast with messages about our identity in Christ, that we're made the righteousness of God in Christ, that there's no condemnation for us. This is another message to join uh, our kind of vocabulary of self from the perspective of God. But to internalize this message of the immensity, the infinity, the vastness of God, the reality that He can squash us like a bug, to begin to see ourselves rightly before God from a biblical perspective is called humility. And there is tremendous hope for the humble. This comes from Psalm 138. Consider the whole story of Job in view of this. Though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the humble. Though lofty, he sees them. He notices them from afar. And then the psalmist reflects, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes, and with your right hand, you save me. And then there's this promise that some of you may need to just hold on to. The Lord will vindicate me. Your love, Lord, endures forever. God has that eternal perspective. The Lord will vindicate me. I've read the book of Job before, but as I read it this time, I kind of wanted the book to end with Job's repentance and for that to be the end of it. And then we would have this, we could have this debate and discussion about how things fared for Job after that moment. Uh, But it doesn't end with a cliffhanger. It's not a mystery, it's not up for debate. This is what happens after Job's encounter with the living God. The Lord restored Job's fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. His brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him uh, before him came and ate with him in his house. They comforted him, consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. And the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. And what's so fascinating and and brilliant about the book of Job, and shows us it's inspired by the Spirit of God, is that in the end, the author of Job validates the very idea that the entire book challenged. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. As the psalmist said, the Lord will vindicate me. Now, we know from experience that not everyone's story ends this way in this life. But the author of Job wants us to make sure that God will make good on His promises, that though there's not perfect justice now, there one day will be. Though we suffer, though we struggle, though we doubt, though at many times our path feels crooked and the desires of our hearts remain out of reach, this will not be the case forever. Unsurprisingly, look in Hebrews chapter 11, what's called the Hall of Fame of Faith, All of those, so many of those who've gone before us have not had a Job ending. They were looking forward to what was promised as if it were still a long way off. But there was a promise with the psalmist, the Lord will vindicate me. This too is going to be made right. And so for those of us who struggle and those of us who doubt, we find that we're actually in really good company. Tom Oden again. He says, there's still room for doubt in biblical faith. Some of you need to hear that again. There is still room for doubt in biblical faith. The Exodus wanderers were subjected to despair and anxiety that God might not fulfill his promises. They said, is the Lord in our midst or not? Jeremiah complained that God was like a deceitful riverbed, as if God occasionally came in like rain on the desert and swept everything away, and then did not appear for a long time. Job was tormented by questions about the fairness of God and the remoteness of God. Some say God has forgotten, He's hidden His face and has seen nothing. Odin says, doubts of this type are intensely present in Scripture, but they have emerged precisely out of a radical sense of the sovereignty of God in the providential presence of the Almighty God, precisely because God has appeared at some points in history. These moments of doubt stand out because there were also moments of certainty where there was a sense God is truly among us. So worshipers who today experienced profound doubts about God can at least know that they belong to a community whose greatest minds have from time to time experienced such doubt. If you feel the ache in your being about the lack of resolution, that's an indicator that things are not yet as they should be, but also be reminded with the hope of Scripture that the Lord will vindicate you, that all things that are not right will be made right when Christ returns in final victory. When our faith is made sight, we're going to understand. In the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible, things are going to be all the more beautiful for having once been so sad. Until then, in our suffering, in our struggling, in our doubt, in the battle to keep believing and keep trusting, we pray, God, I don't understand, but I trust you. I don't have a clue what's going on, but you have perspective on all things. So increase my courage, increase my strength, increase your power in me. If it's not okay, then it's not the end. This is not okay, then we know this is not, this is not the end. We put our hope in the reality of God who promises the Lord will vindicate me. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Things are not okay, and so we know this is not the end. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are we are small little creatures. We know and you know what we're made of. We're made of dirt. But you've breathed your breath of life into us, and so our beings are animated. In you, we live and move and have our being. We are completely contingent beings, contingent on your providence, contingent on a next breath. And yet you're the God of the storms. You're the God who's scary powerful. You're the God who created lions and oxen and the creatures of the deep. You're the one who calls forth the morning. We lack perspective, God, and so sometimes it's really hard for us to trust you. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you would increase our courage, that you would increase our faith, that you would increase our trust in you. And may on the day when we meet you face to face, may we experience true gladness of heart. And may the hope and the possibility of that gladness demonstrated and affirmed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Anchor us as we continue to suffer. And may we encourage those who are suffering and bear their burdens. And Lord Jesus, we pray with the early church that you would come. Come, Lord Jesus. Make our faith sight. Renew and restore all things. Wipe every tear from our eye and give us strength as we wait.